Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada and with the support of Omnovos, Canada's digital customer engagement company. Omnovos makes personalization easy by helping you engage the right customer at the right content at the right time. Find out how you can get started quickly and affordably so you can focus on doing what matters most, driving revenue and margin growth at www.realcustomerengagement.com. The Voice of Retail is also supported by Range. Are you looking to cut your customer acquisition costs by up to 50%? Range helps brick-and-mortar brands convert store visitors into digital customers with mobile engagements. Watch a quick video demo by texting RETAIL to 55055. In this episode, I'm in Calgary with Vice President of Marketing and Member Experiences for Calgary Co-op Penny McTaggart-Cowan. We explore the journey behind launching two new private label brands in the COVID era and managing the brand and member experiences in a time of great change. Next, I catch up with David Kincaid, founder and managing partner of Level 5 Strategy. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talk about David's four decades of helping C-suite executives create and nourish brands and all about the masterclass in brand and business strategy that is his latest book, The Brand-Driven CEO. But first, let's hear from Penny from Calgary Co-op. Penny, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thank you so much, Michael. Well, it's great to hear your voice. You and I first met and last met, I guess, in person at uh, in January in New York City at the NRF conference. Remember conferences? I, I vaguely remember them being in person at conferences. Oh, yeah, they, they are definitely, a, you know, a thing of the past. And, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully someday we will be able to gather again in person. Uh, but in the meantime, I think we've all done really well in a virtual world. Why don't we start, jump in and tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, uh, both uh, personally and professionally, and then what you do at Calgary Co-op. Oh, thanks so much. So uh, actually, my journey is a little bit convoluted. I actually started out um, in sciences at university and completed a degree in biology before pivoting into um, consumer market research. So when you think about science and what science is about in terms of hypothesis testing and discovery and you know, problem solving, I was able to pivot into consumer market research and uh, enjoyed many years with Ipsos, uh, originally with Angus Reid Group and then obviously with Ipsos as they were acquired. And then eventually, uh, about uh, seven years ago, transitioned into marketing strategy and planning uh, with Marks, uh, a part of Canadian Tire and enjoyed uh, a few years there. It was very exciting, um, did lots of really cool things. And then I uh, had this fantastic opportunity with Calgary Co-op. And I joined Calgary Co-op two and a half years ago. And I'm fully responsible for marketing and member experiences for all lines of business, which includes our food, liquor, cannabis, pharmacies, petroleum or gas bars, as well as our home health care. And uh, it's a very exciting organization to be part of. And what is really unique about Calgary Co-op is that we are such a part of the Calgary community. And so it's funny, you know, when I started my career and working with Angus Reed Group and Ipsos Reed Group, a lot of my clients were all over North America. And then I started working with Marks and Canadian Tire, which obviously, you know, Marks is based in Calgary, but a lot of Canadian Tire is based in Toronto. And then when I joined Calgary Co-op, I felt for the very first time I was actually working and living within the same city. And so it's, it's quite... Uh, unique from that perspective and the culture of the organization is just fantastic it is a very caring organization Mm. Um, team members are highly engaged our members are highly engaged and uh, it's just a wonderful opportunity and I'm really proud and feel very privileged to be part of this organization it's such a broad and diversified organization as you as you mentioned and I had the opportunity to interview Ken uh, Keeler a couple of months ago and he, he scratched the surface basically on 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 the wide variety of businesses and lines of business you know what you what you trade off or have traded off so to speak in terms of national or international your focus in calgary is just so broad though right you're you're so very diversified such an interesting challenge for a marketer absolutely it is and so it's very unique from the standpoint that you know we are uh one of uh, the largest retail cooperatives in north america i'm not sure Mm -hmm. people are even aware of that even when we share that with our own members i think they're a little surprised as to the Mm -hmm. scale of what we're involved in um we uh you know have annual sales of you know 1.3 billion dollars and that comes out of a very tight geography because our members you know over 440,000 of them are based in Calgary or the immediately surrounding communities of High River, Cochrane, Airdrie, Okotoks, and Strathmore, which, you know, it's a very tight radius around Calgary. And uh, compared to some of our national uh, competitors, 
we, you know, we don't have the benefit of the economy of scale mm-hmm. of, you know, stores across the country. We have a very small market in which we operate. We have to be very successful. And because we're member owned, this is our geography. We're not, you know, we are not likely to be outside of that tight geography. Right off the top, there's something different about how you describe uh, your customers. You call them members. Tell me a bit about, you know, for those who aren't quite clear on the co-op structure, tell me a little bit about that and then maybe lead into how that how that changes or how you think about marketing when they're members versus their customers. Absolutely. So just high level, um, as a cooperative, it's, it's a distinct operating model. We are founded, you know, by member owners. Uh, $1 allows you to buy a share in Calgary Co-op, and it's one of the best investments you'll make in terms of the return on investment that you'll, you'll receive. Um, we obviously follow the cooperative principles, which there are seven, uh, and um, we really think through how everything that we do, how does it directly affect our members? And we act in a way much in the same way that a, you know, a, a company that is publicly traded thinks about its shareholders. And what we do in terms of our decision making and the planning and the, you know, all of the business planning as well as the marketing activities are really focused on that long-term sustainability of our co-op for our members to be able to continue to return patronage and equity to them on an annual basis. We operate under a financial lens, but also under a cooperative lens. So we tend to look at things. uh, This is a business decision um, and these are the implications of it. And then we apply the cooperative lens. Okay. What does this mean for members? What does this mean for our team members of which we have 3,800 team members who are also members. So what are the implications for our team members? What are the implications for the community and how we are connected to the community and our, how do the cooperative principles balance against these business decisions? And so it does create um, a unique opportunity for differentiation. And it also, because we're in a really tight geography with member owners, we have this phenomenal ability to be very agile and very responsive and very connected to our members. And one of the really unique things about our, you know, our experiences when we think through how we engage with our members is that we have this great longitudinal history. And so we have team members who have been with us for a number of years. And when members come into the stores, those team members know those member numbers by rote mm, because they've been on. working wow. with those members wow. for so many years and they know their children and the grandchildren. Mm. And so it is one of those really unique, highly engaged brands that it's nothing like I've ever experienced before. You mentioned a word there, patronage, and you mentioned it in the context of, you know, the investment in the $1. And I'm familiar with it because I I do some work in the credit union space, which is a very similar model. Just take a minute and and explain that difference. Because what you're describing is basically great customer relationship management and and stakeholder management. And I, I think many people who would be your counterparts would be similarly focused, but not similarly blessed, if you know what I mean, with, with such exactly. a structure. Um, yeah. But talk about the patronage part. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but it, it does, I think, affect how you communicate, right? Is, is this, you give us a dollar and it's, as you said, it's an investment, there's patronage returned. Tell me a little bit more about that before we, we kind of delve yeah. into some other stuff. Absolutely. I think that is, you know, while patronage is part and parcel of a cooperative business model, as you know, cooperative, you buy a share, you earn equity and patronage based on the level of investment that you make within the cooperative itself. So mm-hmm. the more you patronize or visit and spend, you'll grow your equity and your your patronage refund, which is like a dividend that is paid out every February based on you know, the percentage that is determined by the profitability of the co-op overall. So in the past uh, last year, um, for 2020, we were able to pay back to our members 2% on their food purchases, their pharmacy purchases, their liquor purchases and cannabis purchases, but also we guaranteed them $0.08 cents a litre for all of their petroleum. So for every litre of gas that they bought at a Calgary co-op, they received back $0.08 cents a litre in either a cash refund or um, a combination of cash and shares, meaning equity. Right. I think that what's unique about that relationship with patronage and equity and that level of investment is it gives us a cleaner, direct connection to our members versus being a shareholder in a national retailer. Our members come to our stores every single day. We see them, you know, well over 80% of all of our transactions are with members. 
and we're accountable to our members. And, you know, we engage with them. I had talked about how the team members at, at the store level have personal relationships with their members, but we also have a member engagement team who who speak to members all the time on an ongoing basis and chat with them and deal with their concerns through social media and all of those touch points. And so we like to think that, you know, we're held accountable uh, by our members and our members hold us accountable to make sure that we are stewarding Calgary Co-op to be the most successful for the community as well as for them in terms of the long-term value and sustainability of the organization. Let me take you back to the before time, 2019, if you can remember the before time, pre-COVID. Oh, yes, yes. You know, back, to, back to the halcyon days when it was just the retail apocalypse narrative we had to deal with. And, you know, it, it's funny. It's, it's not like the days were simple or uncomplex. And in your world, you had a tremendous challenge opportunity ahead of you um, in 2019 as you looked into 2020, creating, re, really recreating house brands, private label brands that, that match the, the culture and, and what you've just been describing. So take us through that a little bit, right up to the creation of two fantastic brands. I love the, I love the branding. I love the positioning. So, so take us back to 2019 and, and what were you looking at for 2020? So yeah, interesting, uh, the before days. So in 2019, we made um, a, a decision that is transformative for our organization and that we were going to change our relationship with our food wholesaler. And so we started, we, we changed from buying all of our food from federated cooperatives to a new food wholesaler distributor relationship. And in doing, in making that decision and making that change, it opened up a lot of opportunity. First of all, the ability to develop those brands that would be really suited to the Calgary market, to really focus on the assortment that we know our members love to find at Calgary Co-op in terms of, you know, emphasis on local products, as well as finding ways that we could uniquely differentiate ourselves from uh, our competitors by truly defining the Calgary Co-op brand and that distinct sort of marketing opportunity, obviously we have to drive sales and revenue, but to be able to build out a flyer that is very unique and tied to our community specifically in terms of the marketing messages and information that we could include that would be distinct from our uh, national competitors. And, and that would allow us to bring to life some of our unique partnerships as well as focus on local products and tell those stories. And so we really look, we looked at this as we have a massive opportunity here to really reinforce our cooperative identity and connect with members um, on many levels, both in terms of our connection to the community, our connection to um, the assortment, as well as our connection to them through these very unique private brands that would allow us to obviously further differentiate ourselves in the marketplace, but also build a deeper emotional connection to our heritage as a cooperative in the city, as well as how we see ourselves as a city and how we see ourselves as Calgarians and, and, you know, in the surrounding communities. I think that that's, you know, as a retailer, I don't think you have, there's not many retailers that have the scale that Mm. we have that could do that within such a small geography. You know, the whole campaign was really like a jump ball moment. And, you know, we heard from our members. I mean, this wasn't something that was determined you know, in complete isolation, we have been hearing from our members over time and we're, we are highly engaged with our members. They believe me, they'll call us and tell us very quickly if they don't like a product. And we had been hearing from our members, you know, we really want more local. We think there should be more local in, in our stores. We want to have, you know, better quality products or we want to have things that, you know, represent who we are as a city and, and, and as a cooperative. And so, you know, based on all of that feedback that we have been gathering over, you know, through various, you know, through consumer research, through our annual general meeting of which, you know, 400 members will attend and, and share with us their questions and concerns, as well as through our member engagement team, we knew that we did have opportunity there that our members would embrace um, these changes that we were contemplating. And so, you know, absolutely, we really needed to ensure that we seized this opportunity to really bring it to life in a new way and uh, make sure that for the long term, the relevancy of Calgary Co-op as a brand, both in terms of our connection to the community and our membership, as well as, you know, the assortment that we were offering really aligned to the evolving uh, Calgary marketplace. And and talk about your tradecraft. Like, take me one level down 
so to speak, and then we'll kind of go one level back up. Just, but I'm, I'm curious as your trade craft around how you thought about private labels and and eventually how you landed on what they would be and and all the the brand strategy that went into those. Uh, for sure. So I think that um, it, it was really coming down to understanding our heritage, and it's always really important. You know, you have to know yourself and to be truly authentic to our brand. We really had to embrace our heritage and look at how can we use that as a springboard to move forward. And so when we started exploring, you know, marketing overall for Calgary Co-op and really from a marketing standpoint, as I said, we, you know, we, we strive to strengthen our cooperative identity, but also, you know, one of, you know, when you take into account our vision, mission and values, we really want to deliver those exceptional customer experiences. And those exceptional customer experiences are defined based on, you know, the shopping touch points that we all know within marketing that we would normally have as traditional retail uh, touch points, mm-hmm. but also it comes in the, in the assortment that we carry within our stores. And, and we had seen, you know, with the evolution of our fresh meat program to be only Alberta beef, which is a very unique position within the Calgary marketplace. We're con- the only conventional grocer whereby all of the fresh meat sold in our stores is from Alberta, which is, you know, one really big opportunity for us. And so we knew these key differentiating elements could be translated into something that would be more meaningful from a private brand perspective. And so that helped to guide, you know, looking at our community, looking at our members, um, looking at our partnerships and looking and partnerships being, you know, everything from, you know, corporate sponsorships with, you know, sports teams and such, Mm -hmm. but also partnerships with local producers uh, and also then how do we leverage all of that together to deliver value and differentiate ourselves at the same time, which really led us down the path of working with um, private brands uh, expertise that uh, we had to build in house and brought in, you know, people who came in with that level of expertise of understanding the category planning and management. And then how do we leverage that to kind of pivot into defined brands and what assortment would go into each uh, each brand, we were, we landed on um, Calangari's curated as well as uh, founders and farmers. And Calangari's mm-hmm. is really what we use to differentiate ourselves in the market. And so that's going to be the hero brand that we'll always bring forward in our mass communications, like out of home and TV and those areas, because it does differentiate us and it is unique to Calgary Co-op. Now, equally yeah. important. We have founders and farmers and founders and farmers is really all about making sure that we're delivering value to our members from the standpoint that there is a national brand equivalent that is a private brand that will deliver quality at a really great price. And so that is, you know, we decided there had to be two different positionings to be able to successfully break through uh, and deliver the, the quality and the value and the experience that our members were seeking. And it's been an incredible journey. We've added over 600 items wow. Wow. Um, in, a, in a matter of months, <laughs> on, you know, in, a, in an environment whereby, as we all know, from the grocery perspective, mm-hmm. the supply chain has been challenged. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we've been really excited to bring forward these brands. And we're getting tremendous uh, feedback from our members on them. They really have embraced Calangari's and... Uh, as well as founders and farmers, but Calangari's in particular, I think, is where we're really driving that deeper emotional connection and point of pride of membership within Calgary Co-op. Yeah, I think you, you really hit it note perfect. And I also see you're now doing brand extensions on that. So Calangari's Organic, for example, so to allow you some, you know, some flexibility in and around those 600 odd uh, products to kind of build in, um, you know, the value brands through to the the premium lifestyle brand kind of thinking, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And we did, you know, a massive amount of research with our members and understood the importance of, you know, health and uh, natural foods and, and all of those things. And we wanted to make sure that we were reflecting that in the assortment as well. And so there was this really wonderful opportunity to do that, you know, the sub brand of Calangari's Organics. And we offer a number of fresh items that are organic that fall under uh, that brand umbrella. And you know, it's uh, it's really exciting because it's uh, one of those things that, as a you know a retailer within a single market, it, to have that opportunity is phenomenal. I want to touch on, uh, touch on your uh, analytics capacity, and I know you have a great capacity in analytics because I happen to know 
and have worked with in the past, uh, Prashi Churi, who is your director of loyalty and analytics. We go back to Hudson's Bay uh, a few years ago, many years ago, actually. So I know you have tremendous expertise. Tell us a little bit about how you think about that expertise. Is it kind of a uh, you know, cross-sell, upsell, understanding the members better? Like, how do you use that as a, as a lever in uh, in your market? So, once again, as a member-owned cooperative, we have this wonderful member base. And um, I think it's the envy of the entire, uh, you know, of all retailers, mm-hmm. simply because we do have so much data on our members. We know all of their transactions and we know who they are. So, unlike other points-based programs where somebody could have the points card, you You only can surmise who they are, whereas we know who these people are. And we've worked really, uh, you know, over the past few years to develop the loyalty offering for Calgary Co-op. And we're in the early stages. And um, as you had said, Prachi joined our team uh, just over a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And in that time, we've been really building the digital toolkit for our members uh, to be able to um, deliver personalized offers in a more meaningful way. And part of that digital toolkit includes a community whereby over time, we will start to engage with them more specifically on other aspects of loyalty that could be more experiential versus just offer-based. And so we are beginning with, you know, we've done a lot of the foundational work and we're now starting to move into operationalizing it. And uh, it's a very exciting time. I think that uh, all retailers are focused on how do they get more out of their existing consumer base in terms sure. of driving that loyalty. And we absolutely are um, focused on leveraging that for our members as well, because it is about, you know, really connecting with them on a deeper level and providing offers that are more meaningful as well as experiences that they would like to embrace. Last couple of questions for you. And, and thank you, Benjenis, with your uh, your time and your insights. Um, first of all, have you thought of or do you communicate differently during the COVID era? I mean, we can't. Uh, have a conversation without talking a little bit about that. I mean, the, the grocery sector has been, I described it as hit by a shockwave of demand, uh, you know, with the transference of food service into grocery. And that's, as you've described a couple of times, it brought on its own challenges. Um, is, have you cha- changed the way or how do you conceptualize the way you talk to uh, consumers? And then, and then pivoting from that, what's your, you know, one or two things or elements of advice you would share with fellow marketers about doing that communicating and that process. First of all, you're right. This was nothing we had ever anticipated. And we did this all at a time when we were also transitioning our food wholesaler. And we had to really pivot very quickly because safety became paramount. And it became a case of we had to communicate consistently with members and with our own team members internally. It's equally important that we're all on the same page in in terms of all of the things that we had to implement to make sure people were shopping safely within our stores as well as our, you know keeping our team members safe. So we absolutely started out safety, communicating all of the changes and keeping members up to date and answering their questions. And so our member experience team really stepped up in that regard. And one of the really unique things that we did, and this is because we are so local, uh, when this first hit, we said, oh my gosh, there are people who won't be able to leave their houses. How can we support mm. them? And we actually implemented, if you're... If you're stuck at home and or because of isolation or because you had to self-isolate or because you are a high risk uh, individual through health reasons that, you know, potentially catching this, you know, virus could be, um, you know, long term detrimental to you. We would support you with a care package Mm, free delivered to your house. And so we 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 communicated to all of our members. And even people who were not Calgary Co-op members, we didn't differentiate. We said, if you're in need need to be able to have the support that you can't get out, we can deliver a care package to your house. And it would include, you know, all of the, you know, some shelf-stable items that they could use to be able to prepare meals for approximately one week. And we worked very closely with our merchandising team. And we built out all of these care packages with our member experience team. And the store staff assembled these and... We had delivery companies deliver these to people's doors, and we needed to do that to support the community, but also to do the right thing for the for our members to make, to make sure that they had what they needed um, at a time of you know great challenge in terms of everything shutting down. Um, I think that uh, the other thing too that really kind of came through over the the last little while is the importance of local, and so we really were striving to make sure that we were emphasizing the local assortment. Not only does local assortment really 
support local businesses, but it also makes sure that, that you're able, you have a, a stable supply because it is coming locally and it's not getting choked by, you know, challenges that are occurring in manufacturing out east or yep. in other parts of the world whereby those products wouldn't be able to be. And so, uh, you know, that was another thing. And then obviously connecting to the community to support vulnerable populations and really looking at member-driven giving to say, hey, members, we need to support the community. And this is where I think members look to us to help them to achieve their social purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, we partnered with several community agencies that were suddenly overwhelmed with the need to support their vulnerable populations. And so we did a massive amount through that organization. So it it is, you have to be agile, connect to the community, be authentic, and, you know, make sure that uh, you are supporting your vendors, you're supporting the, the, the local community as best you can to, because we're part of the community. Our, our, our members are our owners and they live here in the city. You're basically you know, the, letting the principles that you outlined at the beginning of our conversation guide your communications on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis, right? Absolutely. Um, is, is kind of what I'm hearing. So, all right, last question, and I can't, I can't have you on the mic without asking you your one or two favorites. Maybe it's like asking, you know, favorite kids are, but what are your favorite Cal and Gary's products? I, I love the, I haven't tasted it yet, but I love the positioning around the water. It looks amazing, but is there mm-hmm. one or two that kind of stand out in your mind that, that, that always find their way into your shopping basket? Oh, there are so many, actually. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, some of the things that I really love, uh, we have some great uh, snack nuts and um, we have in particular trail mixes. I love the McLeod trail mix. And this is one that's really unique, whereby as part of the Calangari's branding, to connect it to the city, even though, you know, it might be more reflective of global tastes, we actually have branded it to represent, you know, landmarks within the city. So it's quite unique from that perspective. And so the McLeod Trail Mix with the tagline, take it on after a long day, because everyone knows getting out of downtown, you take McLeod Trail South. It has big chunks of dark chocolate and, um, and raisins and cranberries in it. It's absolutely delicious. I love it. Uh, the other one that I really enjoy um, are some of our bakery items, the Nan bread, which is actually locally produced within Calgary. So that one is absolutely a global uh, a global uh, item, but made locally, and uh, it's absolutely delicious. Our Fred, our, our French bread, also fantastic, um, and then uh, plant based laundry soap. So we have this really wonderful laundry soap. It, it works incredibly well on uh, making your clothes clean, but it has a lovely lavender scent and it is entirely plant-based. And so uh, it's definitely been one of the things, you know, you know, I've started to adopt these on a regular basis, which um, I'm really thrilled to have. And we hear from members all the time, our popcorn, people love the popcorn, the Calangari's um, sweet and salty kettle corn. It's delicious. I can honestly attest I've eaten all of these and, (laughs) and then some. Penny, it's been great spending time with you and understanding Calgary Co-op and how you approach marketing of such a, a, a focused brand with such opportunities. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to 2021 to see what that brings. No more so than I'm sure your organization have to not have to worry about relaunching the whole brand during a during a pandemic. You can get on to uh, just managing the great work you do. So listen, thanks again for joining me on the Voice of Retail podcast. been a real treat to catch up and, and uh, hear from you directly. And I wish you much continued success. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It was an absolute pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity. David, my friend, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you? I'm great, Michael. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. Well, it's been a while since you and I have seen each other, and it might be a little while until we see each other again, but it's great to hear your voice. We've known each other for for many years, and I've had the pleasure of of working with you and and the team. And Ian Ian, uh, has been on the podcast before, so I was really looking forward to today um, just to catch up. And you're such a, a smart brand, savvy uh, leader and you've got a book out so i'm really looking forward to that oh, well, why don't appreciate we appreciate that why don't we jump right in so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your personal professional background and uh, let's start there well i'll uh, try to keep it short and interesting so um i'm a 40-year brandaholic 
I left university with all intents of being a lawyer and ended up being hired by General Foods in their brand management program um, and fell in love with it. It was a very different place, a different headspace, and I had to learn a lot of things quickly. Um, but it was a wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful entree into business. Let's put it that way. And I'll come back to why I say that in a second. Um, then went on to American Express, ran the card marketing there. Um, and then Labatt Breweries for, uh, about 17, 18 years where we set up the national and then the international brand management, uh, systems and capabilities for the brewery as it, uh, was in its heady growth year. So uh, mm-hmm. a lot of great learning there. Um, and then had the good fortune of hooking up with some friends from my old General Foods days and uh, helped them in the uh, launch of a new company um, in the specialty cable world, which is, I think, where you and I first came across one another, um, a company called Chorus Entertainment. And we had this wonderful idea that we could brand air. <laughs> <laughs> up until then, everything was... Uh, station call letters like cfto or chum or and we said nah, we can create consumer directed brands like ytv or w mm-hmm. um and we uh went about set about doing that and created a lot of wonderful specialty cable and radio properties um and did that for two or three years and then started uh this company that um had the uh the honor to uh to lead and be part of for the last 20 years uh called level five strategy we work with organizations who have got the uh, the mindset that says their brand is probably their most misunderstood but underleveraged asset, and they believe that they can create sustainable, profitable growth through this asset called their brand. And that's what uh, we go out to do, and we assist companies with figuring out how to make that happen. So that uh, is 40 years in a nutshell. Well, let's let's talk about the tradecraft of of level five, and and that's where you and I indeed first met. We were doing some work together when I was at Rogers in the Shopping Channel, and then uh, subsequently did some work in some other engagements too. Loved you so much, bought the you know had you back in for different for different <laughs> gigs. So, but l- let's just talk about that tradecraft for a little bit. So, where where and how did you think there was an opportunity for what you would envision level five to be? Like, it's not like there's a shortage of consultants. Uh, on on any main street. So why did you think that there is a, so to speak, a white space or an opportunity that that was an unmet need? That's a great question. Um, um, well, it was. I, I was like I say, had the good fortune of working in some of the largest brand driven organizations um, in the country, and really saw the difference in terms of managing a brand as an asset, as an integrated business system, um, as opposed to what most people think brand or brand management is, which is marketing. They confuse it with marketing and managing a brand and managing its marketing are very different things. Um, they, they require different competencies, different tools, capabilities. And the reason I, saw the opportunity for uh, to create a, a consulting firm like Level 5 is that at the time, there really was nobody else out there um, saying, look, we can, we can bring you all of the necessary strategic and executional capability to manage your brand, but it starts with understanding that a brand is an asset. A brand isn't your marketing. And there was nobody else out there. I mean, you had the ad agencies and the usual communications firms who would do the advertising or the marketing for a brand. Um, they would talk brand, right? They would talk brand and they oh, would talk exactly. creative and all those things, right? Exactly. But exa- what you just said, you'd talk brand and you'd quickly slip into a discussion around its creative strategy or its next ad campaign. And and again, I'm not saying that that's not an important part of managing a brand, but that's that's just doing its marketing. Um, you know, to be able to put up a, a promise, as we say, a brand is the value. So it's, I can measure it. I, I can look on a balance sheet and see and create leverage by having a strong, healthy and growing value in my brand. So the value of a promise that I'm making to the market that is unique, creates competitive advantage, delivers on unmet consumer or customer needs. 
and then that that value of that promise is consistently kept. So what do I need to do to refocus and possibly restructure my organization, bringing in new capabilities, bringing in new supply chain partners, bringing in and identifying key processes, being able to manage that business so that I deliver on that brand that I'm spending those millions of dollars out marketing and making the promise and the communication through. Mm-hmm. So there was nobody really kind of looking at that end to end with that type of a formula. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to give that a go. It plays off of my background. If I have any credibility out there to consult, it's based on, you know, the, the leadership of, of a lot of these key brands in Canada for many years. Um, and I, I'll see if the market agrees with me. I'll see if they're willing to think about the brand and brand management differently. And here I am 20 years later, uh, and I've got a great team of people who have uh, kind of drunk the Kool-Aid and believe in it too. And they are running uh, level five and um, seeing it through a, a very challenging period that we're all going through right now, but doing a wonderful job with it. So there must have been something in that idea because we survive in what I call the land of the giants. So, you know, the big consulting firms and McKinsey's and the Bain's and the Deloitte's of the world. And then there's good old level five. And, um, uh, you know, well, I guess brand- on, the, on the other end of the, on the other end of the spectrum, there's the you know the single shinglers, so to speak. Could be someone like yourself who just says, "I'm not going to start an agency. I'm just going to go out as myself," um, versus bring other capabilities. So you're kind of in between, right? Like, as a would you describe yourself as a boutique consulting firm, like with a specialization? Is that what you? How would you characterize yourself? You you actually took the words right off our vision statement. Um, so we are a very specialized and therefore we're a boutique, uh, consulting firm who creates growth through the lens of your brand. Um, so, uh, it, it is a, a specific perspective and we've built a set of proprietary tools and capabilities that allow us to bring that perspective to life for, for companies who truly do want to explore how they can get more value out of their brands. And uh, that's what's allowed us to survive. Right, right on. And thrive. Um, so well regarded. Let me let me pull on one thread in your what you've been describing. And, you know, my listeners are a mix of, of all types of different uh, roles and retail and retail industry insiders. And some might be thinking to themselves, wait a minute, isn't isn't my sales and value on the balance sheet? Isn't that what I sell out the door? Isn't that the the the, the widgets I sell, the stuff? How do you how do you conceptualize? You mentioned earlier on putting a value to the brand, the promise consistently and well kept how you know for the for the numerically focused folks who might be listening how do they get their heads around that this is probably not the first time you've been asked this question in a, a room full of people <laughs> it's like hey i'm the cfo i don't i don't get what you're saying i don't get i get that i do marketing and i spend money on it and i get that i have consumers and they shop how do you how do you value what you're talking about oh it, it is the biggest question i get asked and you know what i love it when people ask me this because you know, I'm out there saying your brand is an asset. It's a financial vehicle. Mm. It, it, it creates shareholder value or owner value if it's a privately held company. So um, it, I'll be honest with you, Michael. It starts with asking uh, a fundamental question. Um, and I, we do this with every client when we start an engagement with them. Um, and I say to them, look, this is going to sound like a pretty easy question, but it ends up taking a long time for them to answer. And that question is, what business are you in? Mm. Often I'll get the number related, the financial related or the sales related people kind of rolling their eyes, giving me the, oh God. <laughs> or half the, or half the, half the room is thinking it's a trick question. So they're, okay, how does, how, that's, that's an obvious, but what's, hey, the guy's been come on, we, we, sell, we sell beer. What do you mean? What business are we in? Right? Oh yeah. And, and that's, often my response because they will give me the answer. Well, we, we we're a brewery. We make and sell beer or, you know, mobile phones or earbuds or whatever the hell it might be. Right. And, you know, I try not to be smug with my response. I said, well, that's good. Um, that's very good. But I actually didn't ask you what you made or produced or sold. I asked you what business you were in. Hmm. And even then, they're kind of scratching their heads going, where's this guy going with all this? I said, well, let me let me back it up and make it 
come at it a different way. How many businesses do you know that survive without creating value? And usually those financially oriented types, the very, it's a very quick answer, right? right. Not, none. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether it's value for uh, the shareholder or value for their employees or value for the consumer. Like businesses survive when they create value. Well, what creates value? And that's often where I get a real hesitation or a pause. Right. And the answer, in short order, is uh, benefits. Hmm. So the benefits of what you do and what you make and how you make, that is actually what creates value. And that's what a brand and its reputation is built on, the benefits that it provides. Yes, I'm sure you brew beer and you brew a very good beer, a quality beer, consistent quality beer. But the benefit of the brand that you're choosing, the brand of beer, um, if I was to say to you, um, you are a regular uh, consumer of Molson Export. Or I was to say, you are a regular consumer of Stella Artois. I just took you into two completely different headspaces. Hmm. Those brands are both beers. They're both great quality beers. They've both built wonderful reputations around being thirst-quenching and refreshing beers. But they both stand for something very different in your mind. And often those are emotional attributes. You, you gravitate to one for a certain occasion versus another. Um, or I'm loyal for one reason versus versus the other. I, I love the uh, the Heineken. I did a few more than a few tours of the Heineken plant because you get a beer at the end of it. Yeah. Um, just yeah, just to be obvious about it when I'm when you're in Amsterdam and and there's this one marketing floor and they say you know something's always interesting is happening when there's when you're having a beer like it, it is this regardless of the brand. I love I love their marketing. Let me ask you this question as you're describing creating something uh you know i talked to um i talked to roger martin who you may know he was dean of of uh, rotman mba and 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 he does his own thinking and and he said not unlike what you're saying but differently he's saying what you're creating is a consumer habit and his concern when we talked about it was that with covid these these are decaying rapidly decaying consumer habits in other words the perspective is you create a consumer habit to drink Stella Artois. That's what you've created. And, uh, you know, you, you do what you can to foster that habit and make sure it, it remains rich and vibrant. And he's now worried or thinking about, okay, with such a change of, of our lives with COVID that those, those habits become decaying assets on the balance sheet. So the two of you are thinking about assets on the balance sheet in very conceptually similar ways. Would you, what do you think of, of that line of thinking? Is it, is it not dissimilar? Or are you thinking of it in different directions? Well, we actually are thinking about it almost identically because what Roger's referring to the decaying value or the asset of the brand, if, if the, if the benefit that people are getting from that brand is changing or shifting because of the world around them and how they enjoy and how they come to value that brand, then yeah, it is going to have an impact. And, you know, I think where Roger and I would, would completely agree is the one thing that is a given coming out of this strange period in our lives, hopefully a, a, a once in a lifetime period. Um, but the one thing that's a given coming out of all of this is change. Because that consumer, mm. that customer is going to be a different animal. Mm. So the, the drivers, the things that they are looking for, the important attributes of a brand, both those emotional benefits as well as the, the quality. Functional of the and technical and all those. Exactly. Kind of things, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are changing, especially mm. the emotional ones. Mm. So how I, how I perceive and how I extract value from what you do and what you stand for in the market is going to be different because my priorities, what I, what I value is going to be different. And that's, what's got most marketers scratching their heads right now is mm -hmm. like a change is not something new for world-class brands. The reason they're world-class is because 
they adapt to change. The difference in what we're facing right now and why I do agree with with Roger's comments is we don't know what it's changing to because things are changing so dramatically and so quickly. And so, you know, great brands have the ability to predict, you know, consumer behavior to some degree. Um, You can't predict. Hell, I can't predict tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I was doing a, I was doing a, a presentation to a group of groceries yesterday, and I said uh, I started by saying, "Anybody remember the halcyon days, the the easy days when all we had to worry about was the retail apocalypse? That was easy to figure out, right?" <laughs> it's just, you know, my my point is always like we didn't enter this period pre COVID, the before time, in a a stable thing. You just made me think about that when you said, you know, it's not unusual for change. It's not unusual for disruption. These things are. Are happening and, and they've been accelerated. Let's let's talk about the new book. So, I'm going to ask it's it's the brand driven CEO embedding brand into business strategy. I'm going to ask you the same thing about this book that I basically asked you about your consulting agency. Why did you think there is a lot of business books on the shelf? Why did you think uh, there was a space for this philosophy and um, this teaching? You've been talking about it for years. That that it was worth putting in a book and chronicling and, and, and extrapolate. I love the book, by the way, but I'm just kind of, you know, we're, I love the process of talking to writers and about their process and think, okay, what am I going to write about? Where did it occur to you that this needed to be done and that this was a, there's an appetite for what you had to say? Well, I, I think, again, the short answer is if you believe your brand is an asset, um, said another way, it's your reputation. So that, again, those benefits that you provide all of the different stakeholders that are involved in your brand, it's not just the person, the consumer at the end of the uh, of the sales ticket. This is your supply chain, your partners, your employees, your shareholders, the government, media. Uh, There's so many people involved with your brand. Um, So if you believe that your brand, therefore, is an asset that you can create value and leverage with and through who better than the CEO to own that. Right. If you believe your brand is just your marketing effort, well, fine, then give it to your marketing team. And again, I'm not trying to belittle the importance of marketing teams. They're, they're hell, I, I ran them for many years. So, and, yeah. and learned from them and built my career through them. So, uh, but it's managing the marketing of a brand, as I said, is not the same as managing all of the elements that drive that asset value and the business. Your brand is a business system if it's an asset. So all of your, everything that drives revenue, everything that drives cost on your P&L is part of your brand. And the individual with ultimate oversight for that, whether it's the planning of it, whether it's management of it, the decision making of it around it, you know, rests with the C-suite. So the reason I wanted to write the book, first and foremost, was almost why it's an extension of why I started Level 5. People weren't viewing the brand as an asset. They were viewing it as marketing. But I wanted to say, no, that's not there is another way of thinking about things. And that's what Level 5's value proposition is built around. Well, in getting to that point, the next obvious level is then who should manage it? Who should be ultimately accountable and responsible for that asset? And it is the, it's, it's the CEO. Yet when I was doing the research you know, behind the book, but also just observing business over the last 40 years, um, that's not always the case. They're often not the case. It's probably the- in most cases, um, the, 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 the CEO would say, no, that's uh, I've got bigger priorities to focus on. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've got to I've got to develop the, the capital plan and our investments and in improving ROI to create shareholder value to which I'm nodding as they're saying, yeah, you do. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, um, yeah. I'm not and disagreeing with that. Right? That's what your brand, if you think of it as an asset, that's the job of your brand. So what I've tried to do with the book is break it down into um, pieces so that you put the puzzle together to say, yeah, no, I, I, 
I should at least be considering myself as the ultimate brand manager within my company. Mm. And how do I go about doing that? And then I've tried to, through the research, build in as many case studies and examples of, you know, globally acknowledged successful brands um, and to show what role the CEOs have played in their leadership and their perspective in all of those. So I'm, I'm slowly building a case. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, you also talk about, which I, I, I wanted to ask you this question. You also talk about consumers changing. And again, just back to the fact that, you know, consumers are changing long before COVID and the before time, you know, we talk about millennials or Gen Zs and their values and more value based. You know, I hear that a lot. And I, I, you know, the Woodstock generation were value based too. Like have consumers genuinely changed in terms of their perspective around brands and in the course, I guess, in the course of your career, as you, as you think of it, is it a perceptual bias? It is a lens. We look at it is everybody wants to say consumers are different and we're, you know, they're, they're more value oriented or is it truly the case and that there's some kind of, I don't know, exogenous shock that's happened that people are indeed caring more that there's a story behind the product. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I can say over the the years that I've been involved uh, marketing to them, uh, building brands for them, the answer is yes, they have changed. Mm. And the biggest thing that's changed is the level of information and the accessibility of that information and the ability to customize that information, play with that information Mm. to become a more informed consumer. Um, You know, you're right. I mean, I love your, the woods generation. (laughs) I mean, you know, they're going to change the world, right? They're going to change the world. Because they were looking for a higher or higher meaning and purpose. Well, I guess where I would say to try to nutshell it, they were making a statement. Like they were, they were pointing out the need for higher, you know, purpose to make a statement. Whereas today's consumer is using it as a requirement. Hmm. I need to know table stakes. Table yeah, stakes. I, I need hmm. to know that your company, your brand, um, does things ethically, does support diversity, is. You know, a, a fair employer and does not, em, you know, employ uh, children, you know, in in third worlds and take advantage of that are environmentally responsible. I could keep going down all the list of the must haves in the purpose yeah. world today. But and I'm not suggesting that every brand needs to tick off all of those boxes. Well, and, it, and do every consumer. I mean, at the center of the bell curve, if you ask the average millennial, you know, if they wanted to know where their shrimp came for their shrimp salad and where they were concerned about slave shrimpers in Thailand. I'm not sure that they would connect those dots. No, and, they, you know? they at minimum want to know that basic human rights, basic respect for the environment that we are quickly diminishing and respect for the law, like doing things credibly, doing things with a sense of authenticity that, and that they do it continually, that these genuine values actually drive not just what they do, but how they do business. And that is a, that's becoming a requirement. Um, and you're seeing certain companies um, who will remain nameless at this stage who um, have been penalized by the consumer, by the marketplace, for not following that higher order purpose. And that is, is, you can't is, wrap that up just to finish here, Michael, yeah. but that you yeah, can't, yeah. you can't just wrap that up and point that at millennials. I, I think the millennials and, you know, the people who've had access to that information are probably right. more, more questioning, but I think mm. what you're seeing, that's a whole scale change in the consumer right through to those good old baby boomers. Well, a close cousin to that question is, is brand loyalty. And, and uh, through my career, I've seen, you know, ebb and flow, brands don't matter, brands are important. And here I'm talking about, you, you know, it's hard to argue brands don't matter when it's part of the business system and the, and the value. But I, let's just talk about brand loyalty. And, you know, with the ultimate choice we have, you know, we can get, you know, we can get, we see all, we have pricing power, we see pricing transparency, we can get whatever we want onto the doorstep, a million billion products. Is there still brand loyalty? Can that still be created? Oh, and the answer again is yes. And in fact, loyalty today 
is has the opportunity to be even at higher levels than it was at any time before. Yeah, and we're actually we with all of the clients that we we do our research with, we actually go out to test for that. Um, now there'll be different things, different factors that uh, emotional and rational that drive that level of loyalty. But you know, at the end of the day, you will be loyal to something that again drives value for you, benefits mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. And emotionally, what's become, and, and the pandemic has simply amplified this, um, is the core emotion around trust. Mm. Trust and resilience. Like, I, I trust you today, but I know I'll be able to trust you a year from now. Mm. So those two elements are, and I only come to trust you if you make a promise that you consistently keep. So go back to my definition of a brand. Yeah. Um, it's like it, it's like we're moving the numerator and denominator around. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, Warby Parker was famous initially, anyway, for when you bought a pair of glasses, uh, they donated a pair of glasses to someone who needed them desperately. And right. over time, I, I read an interview with the founder, and he said, "You know, over time, nobody cared. Like, or not nobody cared, but they weren't buying our glasses because of that. So it went from the front of the brand promise." To it's hard to even find on their site today. What do you think happened there? Do you think they just keyed in on the wrong thing? Like, is is it you know what they call a, was it just a showcase? Was was it all a show? Did con- consumers ultimately just care they were one hundred and forty nine dollars? Like, what what what? Do you, and that's not an isolated incident, by the way. There's brands who make those claims, and then people are going, yeah, but I'm still going with the cheaper, or I'm going with the different, or sexier, or whatever. Sure, or the ones that are easier available. What do what do you what do you think happens there? Is it just they don't nail it or consumers are just fickle or take the Warby Parker example that you're giving the pair of glasses to somebody who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them or have access to them was part of their brand's DNA. Right. Very important. That is what their entire business model had to be created around that DNA. And in that, that therefore was also their point of difference at the time. Right. Yeah. So when they communicated that promise, that, competitive advantage or point of difference is what they communicated. Well, Mm. if you go back in and you look at the Warby Parker brand today and its DNA, it hasn't changed. They still do give the the, the pair of glasses away for everyone that is bought. So they strategically have maintained the DNA. They just simply have played down the marketing of and the communication of we give a pair of glasses away because they've said people have now come to know that the awareness mm. the acceptance of it the loyalty to it is now almost a given so they do need to you know move the marketing agenda forward but they haven't shifted off the core dna of that brand let's talk about and i've been trying to nail this and i think you nailed it i've been just thinking about you know as a meme for marketers you know the, the five p's but you come up with something in the book I think you nailed it with the with the four P's. Tell me what those are. Well, it, it was actually it was a I, I teach a, an MBA course at uh, Queen's University at the Smith School of Business, and it was some of the students actually who raised this uh, concept mm-hmm. with me. Um, they said, "You know, you're sitting here telling us that brands aren't marketing." Well, I know what marketing is because since 1954. Um, you know, marketing is the four P's, you know, price, place, promotion, package. So Mm -hmm. I get that. So therefore what, what is that comparable model that the C-suite or the CEO should, should employ? That's actually kind of a clever question. So I actually started to think about it. If I'm going to manage that asset and I'm going to manage it consistently, what would the new four P's of brand management be that that CEO needs to employ? And the more I thought about it, and as we did more research for the book, to look at what CEOs of leading brands and valuable growth brands um, focus on, it it did come down to four Ps, but they're new and different four Ps. And those are people, process, IP, which I therefore kind of play with a little bit. (laughs) That's a bit of a cheat, but okay. And partnerships. Hmm. And the, the quick tagline under each, um, if, 
if my brand is the value of a promise consistently kept, regardless of AI and robotics and automation and everything else, um, it will still and always be people who I rely on to both package up and sell that brand, but also to innovate on it and think about it and manufacture it and, uh, you know, all of the different research required to understand it. So people, the way the organization is structured, the kind of culture that you breed that has to be consistent with that brand's positioning in the market. You can't go out and say you should trust me and then have a culture internally where none of your employees trust you. Um, so all of those elements of people are really the responsibility, ultimately, of the CEO. Processes. And I'm going to talk about every single process, but what are the two or three core processes that you have to be best in class at to consistently keep the promise your brand's making in the marketplace? It might be the way you manage innovation or product development. It might be the way you handle distribution and uh, or automation. It might be the way you train people. Like, What are the core processes that you must be world-class at? Right. IP. 85% of the S&P 500 today is driven, the value of those stocks are driven by soft assets, intangible assets. And the single largest driver of that is intellectual property. What do I own that I protect with my trademarks, my copyrights, my patents? How do I build that into my branded business system? And lastly, partnerships. The reality in today's space, whether it's the global economy, whether it's how fast information is changing the world around us and the way we think, and the way we act, I can no longer do everything within my organization. I know what those core processes are that I need to be world class at, but I still need to be able to do this and this and this. Great. I'll go to strategic partners to bring that to me, but they have to do it in a way that's consistent with my brand's values and my brand DNA. So it also has to hang together. I might just partner with people. And I'm, I don't confuse strategic partnerships with outsourcing. I'm not talking about yeah, outsourcing. Yeah. You're, talking about an e you're talking about an ecosystem. You're not talking Very much. Outsourcing. Yeah, yeah. And um, all, let of me, the, let me, all of the brands that, yeah. I, that I case study in the book mm -hmm. use, apply uh, in one way or another, all or most of those four Ps as they manage that brand's ecosystem and its value in the market. Let me ask this last question, and I can't have someone like you on the end of the microphone without um, getting a bit of free consulting for the listeners, so to speak. So I'm going to put two things together. One is your vast experience building brands in, in, in alcohol and beer and beverage and otherwise uh, otherwise stated, and the principles of the book. And, you know, I have a lot of retail cannabis uh, listeners, uh, great retailers, you know, so I'm not talking about the LPs, the people who design or create or grow or create the brands themselves, the retailers themselves. I think some of them are struggling to create a brand for themselves. I mean, the, the product's a bit commoditized right now. I think that'll change. But what, what's your advice? Like, what, what are the two things they should start doing? And this is a long question, so I'm going to ask, ask it in a very short way and a short answer of what are the two things they should start doing more of and what's from your observation and what's the, the one thing they should stop doing again, from just from your observation of what again, retail cannabis brand owners are doing. They should stop thinking of themselves simply as a store, hmm. a place that people come to transact and buy a regulated product. You know, it's, it's been fun for me watching the growth of the cannabis sector. No um, doubt, no doubt. No and doubt. where it is, because I do feel like I'm reliving many of my years in the beer industry. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, regulated sector, regulated distribution, uh, pricing that ultimately the government would, would put, you know, parameters around. What I could say, what I couldn't say, how I could promote it or not promote it. I mean, it, it, it's very much the same thing. But what I'm watching you knew there would be a flood of new entrepreneurs wanting to open up cannabis points of sale, retail stores. Yeah. And you knew, just like in every other sector, like the Alberta beer and wine industry, when it opened up and went private, you know, mm. everybody had to open up one of their stores. And you knew a year later, half of them had gone. 
the half that were gone are gone because they thought of themselves as a beer store or a liquor store here, a cannabis store. So stop thinking of yourself as a physical bricks and mortar point of distribution. Start thinking of yourself as a brand. And how do I develop a relationship with the consumer, with that marketplace? Which means you also have to start from a different perspective. And you and I spent a lot of time talking about this at Rogers. There are two models that people follow. You can either be product-fed or market-led. A product-fed industry or retailer is one who builds their brand around the product that they're selling. And that's really what they focus on is, hey, we have this number of strains of cannabis. We have this portfolio of accessories. We were the first to introduce gummies. We were the first. So it's all about what they're selling as opposed to those that turn on and go, well, no, I'm going to be market led. What are the consumer needs and how do I deliver a benefit against those consumer needs? So maybe it is around making it more convenient. Maybe it's improving the level of information so that people can make smart choices. It might have a whole bunch of things that have nothing to do with actually selling the product. Right. But they're trying to create a larger brand, an emotional and rational set of engagement points. And I, I, I am watching most of the retailers struggle because they are all about the product and not about the consumer. Well, listen, let's, let's leave it there. I think you and I could... We could talk about this for a long we have and we should and can talk about all this stuff for a long time i really appreciate um you joining me because it's really a master class in, in understanding brand at a very at a very strategic level congratulations on uh, on the release of the book now is the book available where can where can folks uh, get their uh, get the brand driven co is that available in most common places is yeah, it, is it yeah. out today it, uh, it actually hit the stands two weeks ago so it's uh, it's still fresh um yeah, the, the Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, there's all the usual uh, book retailers and their and their sites have it available, as well as um, there is a uh, a site dedicated to the book, thebranddrivenceo.com, and um, the publisher, uh, University of Toronto Press, have a uh, a wonderful uh, website where you can um, you can get a good review on it and see what others are saying or thinking about it. And I think if you go through them right now, you actually get a little bit of a early reader discount. So uh, Ooh, <laughs> maybe it's a good right. Christmas present. All right. Well, listen, I'll put I'll put links to all that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, but thank you for for articulating that. And listen, thanks again for being on the Voice of Retail podcast. Long overdue. I've I'm in 150 episodes. I'm surprised it's the first time you and I have talked, but won't be the last. Well, so, uh, David, well, thanks for joining me. Well, let's make it a shorter time next time, and we'll uh, we'll con- I'll continue to I, I say thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I always enjoy talking with you. So, anytime. Well, thanks to Penny and David for being my guests, plus Omnovos and Range for their support of this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, rate and review the five-star rating, and be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a safe week.